Uh, so welcome to church. It's so good to be with you here this morning. My name is Quentin. I'm the pastor here, and we are going to be going to the book of 1 John here this morning. Uh, we love to be walking through books of the Bible together. Uh, we don't want to miss any of God's goodness and His glory and the truth that He has for us. And so that's why you see us walking verse by verse, taking it all in. And so we have worked through the book of 1 John all the way into chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 17 here this morning. And I'm going to start out here by reading it this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. And if you need a Bible, just put your hand up. We'll bring one to you. John, the apostle, the apostle of love, writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to gather here. We thank you that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that is applied to us from him, and because of your indwelling Holy Spirit within us, and your word open before us, that we can gather and we can worship you for how you have revealed yourself to be in the scriptures. Lord, we thank you that we get to see you according to what you have revealed. We pray that you would help us to remove any false ideas about you, any imaginations that we might have of you, but that you would show us yourself exactly as you deem to be represented as we look at your word here this morning. So by your spirit, we pray that you would reveal your scriptures to us. You would illuminate the text into our hearts. And as we do the hard work as listeners of your word, hearers of your word, we, we also trust that you by your spirit are going to open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears to understand that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we would be transformed. I pray that you would move me aside. You would speak to your people by your word as you powerfully do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, do not love the world or the things of the world. If my wife and I could boil down the prayers that we've had for our sons throughout our life, it would be that. It would be that they would love God more than that they would love the things of this world or the world itself. Friends, when it comes to the temptations and trappings of this fallen world around us, we as Christians know the challenge each and every day as we aim to live godly lives for the glory of Christ in a world that is so dark but yet so enticing. Friends, the life of a Christian is a battle of loves. It's a battle of affections. Augustine said in his famous confessions, he said that the human soul tends toward what it loves, so that attaining it, it may find rest. Just as the body gravitates according to its weight, so also the soul, in whatever direction its movement tends, is carried along by love. Well, as we as Christians all know that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds and strength, we also know that our hearts tend to drift, and it tends to gravitate towards other things, that our affections are far too often enticed by the things of this world. A few weeks ago, I said that 
The problem with humanity is not that we don't love. No, we are excellent lovers. The problem is, is that our love is far too often misguided, misdirected, and misplaced. As the Apostle John has been walking this troubled church here in the book of 1 John, as he's been walking with them through the fallout of false teachers and, and counterfeit ideas, that was basically espousing that you could be a Christian yet still love the darkness, John just boldly confronts this grave error straight on. And he commands the church here to not love the world or the things of the world. And that if you do, John just unashamedly just lays it out that the love of God is not in you. Friends, in a world that is so full of temptations, that is tugging at our hearts and our attention, and with our own hearts that are so naturally inclined to seek for our deepest longings here, the most revealing thing about the authenticity of your own faith is not revealed by what you say, but is revealed by where your heart is. Friends, the most revealing thing about your authenticity is revealed by what you truly love. And so today, as we hold up the mirror of authenticity, the, the Word of God, to our hearts, we're going to ask ourselves, what do I really love? Whom do I really love? Do I truly love God? Or do I truly love the world? And depending on what we discover, what is that going to say about where I truly stand before the Lord? What's that going to say about where my heart truly is and what's that going to say about where my destiny truly lies? And so starting in this first verse here, where John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What we're going to see here is that what we love most Sorry, what we love most reveals our true standing. Friends, what you love most reveals your true standing. And so let's start with this command here by John to not love the world or the things of the world. What is, what is he meaning here? I mean, especially as he just instructed the church back in verse 7 and 11 that we're not to hate our brother but we're to obey the great commandment, which is what? Which is to love God and love others. Why in just a few verses later is John commanding us not to love the world? Is John contradicting himself here? I mean, isn't Christianity supposed to be just all about love? But yet what I'm reading here is that we are clearly being commanded not to love something. Do not love. This is a clear imperative command. This is clear cut. And this is actually the first straight up command here in the book of First John. And so what is John meaning here by commanding the church not to love the world? What does he mean? Well, especially when we know that just by remembering, you know, the most well-known verse in the Bible, you see it at the, the hockey games, you see it at the football games, you see John 3.16 plastered everywhere, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Are we supposed to not love the same world that God says that he loves? 
That same love that drove him back in verse 2 here, that drove Jesus to be the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what's John talking about here? There's this, this world language that's being used that, that God loves the world, but what's he saying about us not loving the world? Well, the word world in the Greek is the word cosmos, and this word cosmos in, in Scripture in one way is used to describe all that encompasses all of God's creation from the whole universe as he spoke it all forth into existence, to, and then to every living thing that he breathed life into, we know that God created the whole world as we just finished studying uh, Genesis up from verses or chapters 1 to 12. And if you remember back to what happened in Genesis 1-3, as, as God finished creating the whole world, and as he finished creating us, humanity, what, did, what happened? What did he say when he saw it? Well, Genesis 1-3 says... And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So in God's mind, as he looked at the world that he created, behold, it was very good. This is even reiterated in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 4.4, where it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so friends... As God made the world and as he sees it as good and as he so loved it that he deemed to save it by sending his son to die for it, the sense of the word world here that John is now commanding the church not to love cannot be this material reality of what God has made. No, it has to be something else. Now, as cosmos speaks of all that God has made, the other aspect of this word cosmos, as the biblical writers would use this word, is it's also used in a negative light. That the whole cosmos, the whole world, since the fall of man, is now so stained with evil and so tainted by our sin, it now exists under the realm and the power of Satan. In fact, when you study the writings of the Apostle John, he often speaks about the world as that which exists under the power of Satan. For example, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about Satan. The Bible speaks often about Satan as being the ruler of this world. Paul would say that Satan is, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the God of this world, the one who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That also those who are dead in their sins, according to Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, that the dead in their sins are following the course of this world. And who are they following? They're following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Even later in the book of 1 John, John goes on to say himself in 1 John 5, 19, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so as John is talking about the world and the things of the world, he's not talking about the world in the goodness of God's creation, but he's rather speaking specifically about, about all that is under the rule and the power of Satan. And so when he says, don't love the world or the things of the world, he's saying, don't love that which is fallen. Don't love that which is evil. 
Don't love that which is sinful. Don't love that which is under the power of Satan. Because if you do, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty bold statement. And for some, that's even very scary when you think about it. Friends, what you love most reveals your true standing before the Lord. That is the bold truth that John wants you to take to the bank here. Now, why do you think that John is being so bold to command the church not to love the world? Why does he even have to say it? Well, the reason he has to say it and command it is precisely because we naturally love the world. Not just the world in general, which we do, but that we naturally love the world of evil. Friends, we naturally love a world of darkness. John himself says, right, in John 3.19, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. So friends, even in light of the the greatest love ever displayed on the cross, the problem the church still faces today within our hearts is that we're still drawn towards what is evil. And John's church needed to be warned, and they needed to be commanded. They needed to be warned and commanded because their tendency is to gravitate towards that which has fallen, that which is evil. And the same goes for us. If we do some deep examination... What we end up seeing often is that we love the world. And so as we look at this this, this book here, this mirror of authenticity, we need to look deep into our hearts and we need to ask ourselves, what are we loving? Whom are we loving? Right? It's not about just what we say. It comes down to the question of whether or not we love God the most or do we love the world? If we love the world, John says the love of God is not in us. That love that came down, that love that sought to save sinners, that love, friends, is not in us if we love this world more than anything. So as much as this book is a mirror of Christian authenticity, let me ask you, friends, when you hold up this mirror, what are you seeing? What are you seeing as you look past all of the outside stuff, as you look deep into your heart? What are you seeing as the Word of God peers into your heart and exposes that which you truly love the most? Is it love for God or is it love for the world? Is it love for sin? Friends, if you love your sin the most, John says the love of the Father is not in you. Now, I know that's a heavy statement. I know that that's, that's hard, but friends, this is from God. Friends, God loves you enough to shine the mirror of his truth upon your heart and show you the truth. That's love. Right? To not love somebody is to not tell them the truth of their dire condition. And so as we do this self-examination together as a church, think about where your heart is. Think about where your affections are. Think about the things that you love. Think about those fallen things you love. Think about those dark temptations that you run to in your time of need. And ask yourself the question, what is that worldly delight that just salves the heart, that numbs the pain, that brings me some kind of joy I'm looking for? What are those dark corners that gets your adrenaline going? 
And as you examine these things, ask yourself, are they bigger than we think they are? Are they bigger than we make them out to be? Are they bigger than we want to admit to? And so, friends, as you do this examination, remember, we all have fallen things that still tug at our hearts. We all have particular flavors of sin that tend to tantalize our senses. But the question I believe John is going for here is, is where is your love for God in all of this? That although sin will still be a reality for the Christian, in comparison to your professed love for God, are these fallen things overwhelming your heart and overshadowing what little love you may actually have for Jesus Christ? Because, friends, no matter what we say that we love, if we could take a mirror and see what's actually there, what would we see? What would the story be? Because what we love most reveals our true standing. And when I say true standing, what I mean is, as John says, the love of God is not in you. He means that, that loving the world is incompatible with loving God. That the saving love of God cannot coexist with other competing loves. You ever see that coexist bumper sticker on cars? The coexist bumper sticker is a complete lie. Like all of those understandings of, of faith and false ideas, they cannot all coexist together. It might be a reality here, and we might just all get along, but they all contradict the one truth. There is only one truth, and that is the love of God. And so if you let the love of the world fill up your heart, God's love has no place to fit in it. And friends, God's love doesn't share space. Now, if you remember the Ten Commandments, God clearly says he doesn't share space with idols or gods or other gods, as he said in Exodus 20, verse 2. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them commands. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Friends, God does not indwell a heart that loves other gods, other objects of worship. God does not indwell a heart that hates him. No, as James himself says in James 4, 4, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's hatred of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, to fill up your heart with the world is to be and remain an enemy of God, and the love of God is not in you, nor was it ever in you. As Jesus said himself, and this was an instrumental text in my life, in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. As much as God won't share space with competing loves, you yourself cannot handle divided love between two masters. 
Friends, you can only truly love one God. And if the world is your God, you're not with God. You don't have the love of God in you. Friends, there are no fence sitters in the kingdom of God. You can't have one foot in the world while having a foot in the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Trust me, I tried for most of my young life. No, God doesn't compete with anyone. You cannot have a divided, lukewarm heart with God. No, as Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.16, he said, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. No, friends, it's either love for God or it's nothing at all. That's what you've been designed for. That's what you have been created for. And so John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, as John throws out that bold statement, again, he doesn't just leave you hanging there. No, he's going to bring some more clarity And so he further explains what he means by loving the world as he begins the next verse. And he begins it with the word for, and you could also see that as the word because. So verse 16, for or because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Friends, as what you love most reveals your true standing, what you love most also reveals your true heart. And so John goes on to say, for all that is in the world, again, he's talking about all that is within the realm of darkness under the power of the evil one. And then he goes on to to identify three aspects of what that world is. He goes on to identify three aspects of the world that we need to be keenly aware of. That's why he says all that is in the world. And we're going to see three things here. We're going to see, number one, the desires of the flesh. Number two, the desires of the eyes. And number three, the pride of life. And so we're going to start first with the first one, the desires of the flesh. What we see here is that to love the world or to be sinfully worldly is to be given to the cravings of our own fleshly carnal desires. This is that worldliness that, that, that comes from within. It actually comes from within and it comes from without. But really, he's focusing on what naturally comes from within here. Just like James would say in James 1.14, helps us to understand this, that each, one, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire, right? These are innate, natural, fallen desires, and it comes in all kinds of forms. Now, if you're packing a New American Standard Bible here this morning or a New International Version, you'll notice that the word desires is actually translated as lust in these two versions. That's because when this word is used and it's most oftenly understood, it's it's understood in the negative sense because desire can be good desire, but the sense that, that they're going for, John's going for, is a negative sense. So, therefore, understand that as lust, lusts of the heart. Sinful, lustful desires, lusts of the flesh. And when we speak about lust, that usually brings to mind sins of immorality, sins of even a sexual nature for sure, which as we know in this world is a, is a massive problem for sure. And so you would include that definitely in, in what's, what's being said here. 
but even more so it's talking about the, the sinful natural desires that just naturally rise up from ourselves. William Barclay, he's a, a, common, a commentator on this, he says about these fallen senses, he says, it is to live a life which is dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous in food, effeminate in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, regardless of all the spiritual values, extravagant in the gratification of worldly, earthly, and material desires. The flesh's desire is forgetful of, blind to, or regardless of the commandments of God. So it's really just operating according to my natural senses, what my heart naturally wants. Really, it comes down to operating under the control of our fallen hearts, right? That as our hearts are deceitfully wicked, our hearts are leading the way, and they're trying to, to satisfy every dark and wicked obsession we could ever come up with within ourselves. I mean, just think about those instinctual urges that you have. Think about those sinful thoughts that just seem to just rush in so quickly. Think about the quickness to say something that is ungodly. Think about those knee-jerk responses that seem to just come so, so naturally, friends. That is the flesh. That is your natural self. And the more that you allow the, the natural flesh to rule, the more that those desires of the flesh then start to rule your life and you become a constant pursuer of them. Now, the second aspect of loving the world has to do with the external rather than the internal. That the desires of the eyes that John is talking about here next is speaking about that which is externally enticing. Those things that are coming at you from the outside. Those things that are compelling you and tempting you to sin outside of yourself. As you observe them, as you interact with them, as they are orchestrated and calculated by the evil one, in his domain all around you. I mean, just think about those arrows that come at you from the evil one. Think about how Satan has so studied you over the years and how his ammunition towards you is not just general, but is extremely specific to your weaknesses. And that how we often, like a fool, like in Proverbs 7.23, how we, like the fool are like a bird who rushes into a snare and you do not know that it will cost you your life. Friends, the love of the world through the desires of the eyes is a lethal thing to play around with. Remember what Jesus said about the eyes. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And this is why Jesus said so seriously in Matthew 18, verse 9, he said, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So friends, worldly love within and worldly love from without just leads to a cold, dead heart that cannot love God. It's a heart that has no room for God. Even as John goes on to talk about 
the pride of life here in the text, what he's saying thirdly is that love of the world just leads to more love of self and more love of stuff to the point that one's pride and arrogance just takes such deep root that you end up thinking that you're the king of your own destiny. That what you have and who you are and what you have achieved is where your worth is. And friends, just as God doesn't fill up a heart that's full of false idols, God will not share the throne of your heart with you. Now, your heart was designed to be the throne of the Lord. But if you're on the throne, John says, this is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, as the Lord so perfectly says in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, God says this to us. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Friends, to love this world is to feed our carnal selves upon that which steals our affections away from the Lord and places our affections on things that are not of God. And so it comes down to what we're giving ourselves to. Are we giving ourselves to Him? Or are we giving ourselves to our internal desires, those external temptations? Are we giving ourselves to that old, ancient, original evil desire to want to be God ourselves, right? That's that same temptation that Eve faced as she was tempted by, the, by an external question from the serpent, right, that God was holding out on her. Did God really say? And then this then created an internal fleshly desire for more to the point that she wanted to be her own God and to make her own decisions. That's the pride of life. And then as she gave in to these temptations, Genesis 3, 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it's then when she took the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Friends, this is the oldest game in Satan's book. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We also see that in the pattern of King David with Bathsheba. As he gave in to his own fallen internal desires, he then pursues external temptation of the world. He sees a woman bathing on the roof of her house. And how his own pride and arrogance led him to sleep with her. His, his lust for selfish fulfillment, which led to sin and more sin. Friends, there is a war within and a war without. And I know that you feel it, because I feel it as well. And so as we see these three aspects of loving the world, the question for us is, what are we loving most? Whom are we loving the most? Friends, I know that each, each of us here are facing the challenge of divided affections every day. How we are enticed internally by our own flesh, whether that be the desire to be loved 
you know, a desire to be loved that may point you to, to go to all kinds of sinful lengths just to be wanted and desired? Maybe that's the point for some that would lead you to go outside the bounds of what God prescribes is right and healthy for you. Maybe just think about a relationship that you may be wrapped up in. Maybe it's a relationship uh, pursuing an unbeliever for love. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's worldliness. Or maybe it's that fallen inner desire to give yourself over to dark and immoral thoughts, those desires of the flesh, those worldly passions within. And that may be leading you to act out in idolatry and immorality. Friends, it could be any number of fallen desires of the flesh. And so the question is, if we want to analyze our hearts and see what's going on, we need to ask ourselves, what's going on in the heart? And so number one, what occupies me most? What am I so occupied with? What's taking up my time? What's taking up my thought space? What's taking up all that space in my mind and heart, in my thought life, in my private life? What within me is leaving no room for the Lord? Or maybe when it comes to the desire of the eyes, you need to ask yourself the question, what's captivating me most? What in the world around me, under that power and the realm of Satan, is stealing my gaze and is tugging on my heart? And it's all kinds of things. It could be money, it could be success, it could be acceptance, it could be lust, beauty, power, stuff. All those things of the world that we can so sinfully pursue and, and kind of make gods out of? Friends, those are calculated arrows from Satan that are dialed into the very heart. And they promise all kinds of fulfillment. They promise satisfaction. They promise happiness. They promise contentment. And so we ask ourselves, what are the vices that Satan has set up as traps for me? So there's this, there's this internal struggle. There's this external artillery against me as well. Like maybe you're struggling with feelings of inadequacy and fear and anxiety and depression and anger and, and the like. And instead of running to the only one who can heal you and restore you of these things, you end up running to the world. Maybe you run to entertainment. Maybe you're running to escape. Maybe you run to slothfulness, laziness. Maybe you run to a toxic relationship. Maybe you run to sex. Maybe you run to toxic vices, the pills, the alcohol, the drugs, you name it. Friends, there is so much out there that promises fulfillment. There's so much out there that promises relief. The world promises to satisfy you. Maybe it's also the pride of life as you're tempted to think that your value and your worth are found in who you are, what you've achieved, what you have. Friends, when it comes down to the pride of life, you need to ask yourself the question, what is really driving me? What gets me up in the morning? What gets me excited the most? What energizes me the most? Is it God or is it me? Or is it something else? Friends, the world, the flesh, and the devil always overpromise and underdeliver. 
Try as you might, you will never satisfy the deepest longings of your heart in this world. No, again, as Augustine so famously said, he said, you have made us, O Lord, for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Friends, what you love most reveals your true heart. And then thirdly, here John shows the church that what you love most also reveals your true destiny. Verse 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, this very thing that we're so prone to love and devote our heart affections to, this fallen world is so tempting, so enticing, that we fall for it hook and sinker, and we blindly follow it. We buy into it with all that we are. But what we need to know is that this place is passing away. This world is dying. It is fleeting. And it is so disastrously temporary. Its end is looming. Destruction is approaching. And if the hooks are deeply sunk into your flesh, if your eyes are entrapped by its sensuous gaze, if your pride is held deeply within its sinister claws, friends, your destruction is looming as well. And it's eternal. As Satan knows that his days are numbered, as he knows that he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, he is doing everything he can to take you with him because he hates you. And even more than that, he hates God. He doesn't want God to get the glory. And so the question that arises right now is, what are you willing to lose as you seek to love the fleeting delights in this fallen world? Jesus himself said to his disciples, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Friends, to love the world is sin. To love the world is to lose your soul. To love the world is to choose eternal suffering and death. Why are we so prone to giving up the eternal for the temporary? Well, if you remember the parable of the rich young ruler, you'd remember how a young man came and asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus goes on to walk him through some of the, the commandments with him, which this young man then says, well, I have kept those. But then Jesus, knowing his heart, in Matthew 19, 21, said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus isn't saying that what gets him to heaven is actually selling his possessions. No, what Jesus is saying is that his heart is so in love with his possessions, he'll never get to heaven holding on to those things. And so what did the rich man do in response? Well, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't give them up. He loved his possessions more than he loved Jesus. He loved the world most. It's like when another man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But again, Jesus, really knowing where his heart was, says to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is basically saying that to follow me may mean giving up the comforts of this world. 
And then another man comes along and says the same thing, but yet he couldn't give up loving the world himself. And so Jesus says in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, I believe that our biggest problem when it comes to loving the world is that we tend to only really believe in what we can see right now, what we can touch right now, what we can have right now. Right, Like children not wanting to wait for the real thing, we end up settling for less, we end up settling for the temporary, we settle for those momentary sinful delights as we believe the lie that satisfaction is found in them. But as Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, we're not to look to these things, to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, this world that is so shiny and so tempting right now is also so very transient. It's so fleeting, as John says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, Jesus never said it was going to be easy to follow him. No, he said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, loving the Lord most is the harder thing. It can even feel at times like a lonely thing. That is all the world is going one way, but yet you're going the other. It's so easy to take the wider road. It's so easy to take that highway that is wide open, full of people. The narrow way is the harder way. But that's the right way. Friends, the world is passing away along with its desires. John says, don't go that way. Don't love the world or the things of the world because its end is destruction because what you love most reveals your true destiny. Now that's on the negative side of this crucial statement. But again, that's not, not where John leaves us here today. No, as what we love most reveals our true destiny, John says after such a strong commandment to not love the world, he finishes this section by saying, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, to love the Lord is to do his will. As Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Friends, to love the Lord is to love him and, and to not love the world. To love the Lord is to find our utmost satisfaction in him. To love him is not to gratify our fleshly desires here. To love the Lord is to have our eyes transfixed upon his beauty and his glory, not on the things of this world, but on the things of heaven. To love the Lord is to boast in Christ alone and not ourselves. And so friends, if that is your desire, if that is your boast, if God is what you love most, above all, and he says here that you are abiding right now and forevermore. That although this world is passing away along with its desires, if you love him above all else, you are doing his will and you will abide in him forever. That although the world is so alluring and tempting, again, as we remember how transient it is and remembering how the world always 
overpromises and underlivers. Remember that the way of the world is the way of death. But the way to life is doing the will of God. It's to have your deepest longings and your greatest joys satisfied only in Him. It's the way that is not going to be easy. And friends, we're not going to do it perfectly. Right? John is not an idealist. John is a realist. We're not going to do it perfectly. In fact, I guarantee that along the way, you are going to fall and you are going to fail again and again, and that's where the gospel comes in. That's where we have to realize that as much as we may have good intentions, we will still fumble. We will still fail. But that's why Christ Jesus had to come. That's why the greatest love had to come down as God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Love had to come down because we couldn't love God. We couldn't love that God who loved this world so much. No, love had to come down. He had to put on flesh. He had to put on flesh in the likeness of those who love their sin the most. As God knew that at every turn we are going to choose to love ourselves, to love this world more than Him, He had to send His Son who at every turn chose to love His Father over the world. And then as perfect love was then nailed to the cross, as he was beaten and broken and bleeding out of love for us, even more than that, he loved the Father most. He loved the Father most. He loved us and he loved the Father most as God's wrath and punishment for our love for sin was then poured out into his Son, And then as the Father himself forsook his Son and judged him in our place, Jesus Christ took our eternal sentence. He took our deserved death. He took our deserved hell upon himself. Greater love has known than this that he would lay down his life for his friends. Friends, we can never be reminded of this enough about how God made the only way for us to truly love him again, and that was through Christ alone. That we could ever hope to truly love God now and forevermore because Jesus, because God loved us first. Friends, what you love most reveals your true standing. What you love most reveals your true heart. What you love most reveals your true destiny. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Love the Lord your God. Amen.